Hello and welcome to Navarra FM, brought to you by Navarra Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest and most electrifying of radio stations. I am James Butler and it is a month or just over since Labour's catastrophic defeat in the general election. The party's period of reflection since has not, to put it politely, really seemed like a serious exercise. A wearisome cycle of hot takes has prevailed, usually determined to demonstrate why the general election proves this or that author was entirely right about everything and more importantly that you should vote for their candidate for the succession <laughs> that was predictable if depressing and on today's show i'm joined by a writer who i think it is fair to say is pretty good at looking unflinchingly at the gloom uh, author of among other excellent things one of the best books on corbyn and corbynism richard seymour welcome back hello hello thank you for having me so we are a month on and that initial cycle of hot takes has died that died back a bit and can you give me just a sense I'm sure it would be unsurprising of your initial reaction to the defeat and what you've made i guess of, of that that period of reaction to it that that kind of you know how people have been making sense of it I mean, the the immediate response uh, was um, uh, absolute shock and horror to the extent that I was barely capable of moving um uh, as soon as I saw the um, exit poll, um, I knew that um, I wasn't going to stay up for the rest of the results. Um, and um, I spent some time trying to rationalise it in my head, like, how? How? Is there any possible way out? Is there any way this exit poll could be wrong? Um, but um, I, had, I had forewarned um, uh colleagues and friends that if we got badly beaten I might be found lying face down on the floor for the next year and uh, not literally true but certainly that's um, the emotional tone um, one of the things that I think has been uh, a bit of a struggle uh, for me and I think generally there's um, a tendency to want to lash out you know there always is when there's a death in the family when there's something mourned you want to lash out First of all, you want to uh, lash out at the um, at, at the deceased for being dead, you know that kind of thing, um, and uh, so you want to, in this case, perhaps trample all over the ideals that led you to where you are, um, and uh, or you might want to trash Corbyn. You know, I've seen a few people sort of lash out. You know, um, or you might want to sort of divert it and blame somebody else somebody else in the family, somebody on the right of the party or somebody on the, in a different faction of the left. So much of that, so much of that on Twitter mm -hmm. um, to the point where it's actually some people have gone off the deep end. Um, so that's, uh, um, I think w w what we have to face up to here is the political nature of uh, mourning and what happens when mourning is thwarted. Um, something I, I probably ought to mention um, since I started off on this, there is a danger uh, that these affects uh, sort of take a, a nasty political form. For example, you know, uh, obviously it was very demoralizing um, uh, for labor activists to face the charge constantly that they're anti-Semitic. Well, you can see how uh, those affects would be channeled into, ironically, anti-Semitism, um, particularly after having lost. Um, now, obviously, what that would be is a displacement of a political failure. You know, anti-Semitism would be crystallizing around 
the knowledge that you've paled politically with something we haven't done. Um, and I, I think that there are other ways in which it could turn nasty as well. Um, it doesn't always. I mean, you know, um, since I'm saying all this, perhaps I should uh, establish my bona fides. You know, I've been in the process of organizational breakdown and mourning and mutual recriminations before, and I've seen where it goes. Um, and it does feel very much like some of the early stages of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I should say also, like, you know, that so, so that night I, uh, you know, very similarly, you know, saw, saw, saw the exit poll and, you know, it felt very much, you know, <laughs> like the ground opened underneath you. Mm. It really like things that that you know that you had taken uh, not for granted, but uh, you know as read uh, the certainties which had shaped certainly the campaign period for me. Uh, the things that I had believed in and put in so much effort, and this is true, I think, for many many people who are involved across the campaign, put in so much effort uh, had had been rejected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously an extraordinarily painful experience. You know, I, I went home and then I thought, oh, God, I've, I've promised to produce two articles on this election yes. by tomorrow morning. So I so I sat there all night in, in you know, um, in what was a, a very cold, uh, cold, cold bedroom, uh, which felt, felt appropriate at the time, and, and sat there and, and sort of, you know, tried... To, to think rationally about it, I wrote a piece for a very short piece for the LRB blog, uh, another piece for, for the New York Times on what you know and what the election meant, just to, you know in terms of that 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 initial readout. But there's obviously a, a great deal more work to do to, to be thinking about you know actually the implications of this defeat, and, and and some of that work actually I think is still ahead of us. There are still things we don't know. Yes, um, and I, I think that's important to bear in mind because I think one of the dangers and it's one of the things that, that you're talking about is that we end up being calcified in our sort of initial reactions to this stuff that, you know, I, well, this proves, you know, my misgiving in the campaign was X, Y, Z, so therefore I must have been right about that and that's what was wrong. Yeah, It's a very easy position in some ways to adopt and it's a very dangerous one, I think. You know, it prevents you from looking clearly uh, at what has happened. And and I think you're right to say that that there is this you know, th- this kind of failed mourning going on of the project. And, and you know, there, there's lots of ways it comes out. And, and you know, certainly the ones you identify, you know, the, the desperate desire, you know, among certain parts of the grassroots to find, you know, even to get Corbyn to stand again, which, yeah. is, you know, which, is, which is explicable, I think, only in the sense that you, you're aware of this, this project having, you know, having failed, having, yeah. having ended and not wanting it to end and, and you know, and, and so on and so on. And then, you know, that there are all sorts of, you know, blame games and recriminations going on. I think, you know, I I think they're dangerous. I think you know. Yes, of course. Um, and I think they leave, you know, they lead in a, in in a dangerous direction. Um, some some of the rest of the reaction to it, you know, I you know that 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 there's also, you know, obviously the flip side to this. And again, I, I'm now worried here that, that, of course, the thing I'm going to do in response is to say is to point fingers in the places that I think fingers should be pointed. But I, you know, I I do think, you know, or, or my sense that evening and since has been that there have been a great number of uh, diagnoses of Labour's failure which were effectively written in 2017, put in a desk drawer and brought out immediately as an explanation. So the the real (laughs) sign of this for me was um, Alan Johnson 
on that evening, you know, just after the exit poll. Yep. I think 20 seconds after it came out, sort of turned around and said, right, you know, it's time to purge momentum. It's time to purge the left. Yes. And you think, well, this is, you know, <laughs> one, you bear quite a lot of responsibility for the last few years of politics. Um, your involvement in the Brexit campaign, for instance, mm-hmm. perhaps ought to lead to a little self-reflection <laughs> there. Um, absolutely not saying there's there's no room for reflection on momentum's part either. Of course. Um but but that that attitude of of kind of purgation that that sort of idea that there is there is actually a, a kind of playbook to deal with this thing to deal with this kind of defeat because the shadow of 1983 hangs over this as well right mm-hmm. so so that was 1983 was Labour's kind of catastrophic defeat uh, under Thatcher you know a very different electoral geography in some senses it was prior to to the defeat you know the the loss of Scotland it was you know Labour was beaten back to its you know so called heartlands including many of the places that were lost. Mm-hmm. This time around, so so the geography is different, the the context is different, the politics was different, um, but there are similarities in that there are actually I think you know useful things to look back and think about the response to eighty three in, in, in some ways, but it does seem to me that that, that nineteen eighty three is is going to be you know the touchstone for a section of of Labour Party in response to to this. Yeah, are there dangers there? Uh, yeah, clearly, because um, well, okay, let's let's um, try and situate this uh, historically. Then, um, uh, in terms of the uh, sort of number of votes, share of the vote, certainly, I think this was not as bad as 1983. But we live in we work in a first past the post system, so it was worse than 1983. So there is that. Um, but also, um, we face a, a very different uh, constellation of historical circumstances. So um, what was going on in uh, the early 1980s was that there was a backlash against uh, post-war social democracy. Uh, in large parts of the population, there was a backlash against the trade unions in particular. Um, there was a growing sort of openness in um, d- decisive and influential sections of um, uh, voters um, uh, in favor of... Um, aspects of Thatcherism. So even if they didn't go all the way, um, the Social Democratic and Liberal Alliance offered them a way to sign up to a, a version of Thatcherism which, you know, held on to aspects of social democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if you go back and look at it, I mean, actually what's really surprising is how often the SDP Liberal Alliance really agrees with Thatcher, especially when they're smashing the miners and mm. all the rest of it. So um, that was a really different set of circumstances. This time it, it feels much less like it's got to do with a positive project, notwithstanding the specificities of Brexit, which we'll come back to, but um, a lot of it is just um, the um, the working out of um, exhaustion, innovation. Um, a lot of it is whose crisis is worst at this particular moment. And um, certainly the the evidence now is that Brexit has allowed the Conservatives to rebuild a viable coalition. They got, uh, ever since the 2016 vote, they've got uh, a coalition of between 13 and 14 million voters, uh, closer to 14 million, to be honest. Um, they haven't had that since 1992 and the ERM crisis. Um, so uh, this is a set of circumstances. If, if Put this in context. If Tony Blair had faced that kind of conservatism, he would have been a weak one-term prime minister. 
He wouldn't have won a majority mm. in 2001 because he would have he would not he, he pulled together what in 2001 just under 11 million votes. 2005 obvious defeat. Um, he pulled in uh, under 10 million votes, um, less than Corbyn just got. So, uh, and that was with Scotland in the mix. So that, I mean, it seems to me that we're at a stage where the decisive issue is nationalism. We've seen that with Scotland. We've seen it with Brexit. Um, to some extent, uh, there's the Irish national question uh, going on in the background, although much more complicatedly. Um, Wales is is very is a very different set of circumstances because it seems like Wales was split um, by region, mm. you know, and and it's not really it's really more about uh, whether they're signed up to the project of English or mm. sort of British nationalism, as it were. I suppose it's also complicated by the fact that Welsh Labour is in power. In yeah, that's right, and that there's a long-standing problem there that that I you know in some ways the the English party has always been like, well, that's a, a small thing over there that we don't really understand or indeed care about. Yeah, and and obviously uh, one of the problems that Labour faced in uh, across the country was the feeling of incumbency. A lot of voters said, um, you know, Labour's been in for years because they have in these local areas, um, and they've done nothing for us. So Labour was getting the blame for um, potholes, you know, the failure of the bins to be collected, you know, all the local infrastructure problems that are caused by austerity. No doubt, local councils have some share of responsibility for what's happening. Um, but they have had their budgets salvaged. <laughs> so this was uh, part of the problem. But also, I think, um, coming back to Brexit, um, Corbyn is a victor, a, a victor, but a victim of his own incomplete success. Because in two, 2017, uh, Labour almost got there. Another few weeks, maybe they would have got a majority, I don't know. But they, they, that was the sort of momentum, the direction of travel. Um and they got just enough to stop uh, Theresa May from having a viable majority um, and to put the Conservatives into a serious crisis. But the result of that was that uh, Corbyn was then obliged by uh, backbenchers and so on to actually uh, stop Brexit going through. Um, and his role became, um, it was almost as if he was in government, you know, his role became uh, sort of a senior statesman whose sole positive contribution was to tie the government up in knots where possible. Um, and even then he was getting hammered for everything that he was doing from all sides. Um, so that um, we come to, you know, the general election and it's as if Boris Johnson is this um, sort of outsider rather than an incumbent. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I guess there's been uh, some arguments about whether um, the whole stuff about proroguing parliament um, and these tactics that were designed to lose, but they were designed to lose in such a way as to get people angry mm -hmm. and to motivate their side. Um, I think there might be some truth in that. Um, and so um, the big picture issue, it seems to me, is um, not so much the breakdown of uh, a sort of social democratic consensus because that's not what's happening but rather um, I mean or rather that's been happening for a long time but um, rather what we're seeing here is um, a, a global trend towards what I've preferred to call disaster nationalism mm. can I yeah, talk about please. that okay so um, 
just to uh, sort of situate it relative to some uh, sort of international examples, uh, Narendra Modi just got re-elected with a bigger majority, having largely failed in office. His economic project was a disaster. Um, but what did he promise? He promised that we're going to smack down Pakistan, we're going to invade Kashmir, and we're going to uh, wage war on the rights of Muslim citizens. Um, and that they, he, he won among almost every demographic. Right. Uh, Rodrigo uh, Duterte, who won, you know, the, the thug life president, who won having boasted about having killed someone at the age of 16 and liked it, having promised that he would kill three million people, compared himself to Hitler, you know, who's going to fight the war on drugs, all that stuff. Um, two years of death squad rule gets um, wins the midterms. No problem. I mean, it's important to sort of qualify this. This is a large part due to the utter uh, incoherence of the opposition. Um, he didn't win a majority of the votes. However, he won. Um, okay. Um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, up to his neck in corruption and war crimes. I think the corruption matters more in Israeli politics than the war crimes do for some reason. Um, but uh, gets keeps squeaking back in. You know, like in any other context, a candidate yeah. like that, he'd be out. I mean, he's got the IDF against him even. He's got the courts against him. He still keeps getting back in. Um, Trump... I doubt he will get re-elected, but he could. Mm. I mean, it's not off; it's not completely off the agenda, especially if his opponent is Biden. But um, he could um, uh, get back in just by gaming. You know, if, especially when you've got this first-past-the-post system, you only need to game a small mm. layer of swing voters. They've learned this. That's what the Tories just did um, in, in some ways. Okay, so, um, and then, you know... Uh, Victor Orban gets re-elected with a big swing in his favour so that he's now got more than half of the vote. And on a bigger turnout, too. You don't have to get... You don't have to deliver on the economy. You don't have to improve people's lives. So that's an interesting fact in itself. Now, um, uh, I suppose, you know... Uh, given my interest in psychoanalysis, um, you would expect me to say that I think we should pay some attention to what Freud uh, would have warned us about on this. And Freud's um, sort of concept, I mean, as he invented the myth of the death drive. Not something to take too literally, but it indexes a part of human behavior that has nothing to do with this Adam Smith notion of self enlightened self-interest, or indeed the neoliberal notion of entrepreneurial self-interest. I mean, that idea has never really explained human behavior. Um, and uh, it certainly hasn't explained uh, the behavior of voters over the last few years. Leave voters overwhelmingly say, you know, uh, I, I'd be happy for the British economy to be, you know, to be damaged if we got Brexit done. Uh, even 40% of them said they'd be happy to lose their own job if they got Brexit done. So it reminds me of this this uh, anecdote given by Tad DeLay, um, where he describes, uh, he's an American um, theol theologian and psychoana psychoanalyst, um, he describes um, uh, a sort of friend of his who's pretty right-wing, pretty conservative, uh, really hates Obamacare and wants it destroyed. But the irony is Obamacare is keeping him alive because he's very ill. But nonetheless, the fantasy matters more than his personal mm. self-interest. That's what we have to get to grips with. This is what's going on with disaster nationalism. I mean, there's a whole series of things going on. But one thing we can't say is that it's a, a, in any unmediated sense about direct self-interest or even class interest. Um, there's a lot going on there, but there's also a degree of self-destructiveness, I think, that's been unleashed. And in fact, um, maybe... 
we could uh, trace it back to Freud's other uh, important writing, Civilization and its Discontents, about written in 1929, just as capitalism was crashing and Hitler was on the way to power, about the fact that civilization um, itself is quite precarious, is quite fragile, and a lot of people would welcome the chance to tear away the the cucking constraints of civilization. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, my, one of my touchstones over the last few years has been that, um, you know, now now quite quite well known, two volume book by Klaus Teverleit, the male fantasies book, which mm. examines the the sort of cultural output and the, the sort of diaries and novels that, that were were read by um, or written by you uh, sort of young proto Freikorps and Freikorps members and sort of what became. Uh, the, the Third Reich, and there is this, this quotation from one of them, or, or from one of those novels they were reading. I just wanted the whole world to explode. You know, this this kind of sense of, of sort of deep rage and and yeah, you know, you know, com- complete destruction. But it does it does seem to me that that you know, like you know, in some ways, um, you know, th- th- this provides a, a quite a serious challenge to the left. In some ways, the, the, the two things you outline: one, that the typical logic, you know by which we enter into elections, which is that there are material things that yeah. are you know, that that can that you can gain by voting for this political project and it will improve your life in XYZ way. Yeah. That that is maybe not the logic or not the only logic that operates in elections, that there is this whole other kind of emotional, affective yeah. Um, order that that is very very powerful and and, and sort of undergirds you know a lot of, a, a lot of what's been going on as you say not just here um, over, over the last few years and then then there then there is this this sort of you know um, you know a, a other problem as well which is is that that actually th- that we don't have the you know the, the language or the tools or uh, you know really much in the way of precedent in terms of figuring out how to to navigate through that and i guess you know in in some ways one of the things that 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 worries me in some ways is you look at this and then you know that there is a danger of it becoming almost compensatory in mm-hmm. a sense right of saying you know well well actually then then we did the best we could and actually we didn't have the tools yeah. to deal with this so there was there was there was nothing that went wrong on our side i'm not suggesting you're saying that at all sure. but but it but, but i think it is a risk and so, so in some ways, you know, it, it does seem to me that, that our account, you know, it does have to look at, at what we did wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whether that was overconfidence in terms of going into an election in the first place. Not that I, you know, and I think that there is a, a myth that's now grown up and it was you know, cited by Emily Thornbury in an interview the other day that, oh, we sh- well, we should have had a referendum separate from an election. We shouldn't have voted for an election. We should have demanded a referendum. So, well, a referendum was not possible yeah. in that parliament. It, we, there was no, it would never have happened. Yeah. Right, like, the, like just arithmetically in Parliament, it wouldn't have happened. Um, but, but, but also, the election was a fait accompli at that point, right? Because yeah. the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish Nationalists both said, "Well, we're going to vote for one," which means that it was going to happen. You know, in the way that Boris Johnson was going to bat it, it was going to happen, and they had their respective logics for doing so. The SNP wanted an election before the Alex Salmond trial kicked off uh, and they all became embroiled in, you know, what I'm sure is bound to be a, a, a pretty damaging, um, you know, period for them. Um, not fatal, but but damaging, I think. Uh, the Lib Dems were drunk on hubris. Their ranks had been swollen. They, you know, thought that there was going to be a huge social majority in the country for their position. They were, as it turns out, wrong. Mm-hmm. Um 
so you know, fair to complete in that sense. I think it's worth saying that because I think, you know, one of the repeated problems of the diagnoses that have continued sort of after the election is to look backwards and think there was a greater latitude than there necessarily was. The same is true over, I think, the Brexit position. Now, look, I don't think the Brexit position of the Labour Party was any good, but it was dictated, um, it, you know, effectively by knowledge of a civil war within the party and powerful... Um, you know, factions in, in, on both sides yep. of, of the debate, a perception that the country was divided, a perception that divide ran right down the heart of the Labour movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, among the Labour vote in, in, in particular constituencies. Now, you know, the, the, you know and, and what I mean here in some ways is that the difficulty there was a real one and it's not one that can be surmounted by saying, oh, well, you know, Lexit would have won or Remain would have yeah. won. Or yeah. you know, that that is not that is that is not a plausible analysis of the situation. Yeah. You know, in some ways, you know, I, I I think the question goes much deeper. You know, that it's the kind of question and one it, it sort of touches on the kinds of nationalism that you're talking about, right? So mm-hmm. it's been definitely inflected in that way and argued in that way, campaigned for in that way. It's also a constitutional question of the kind that the Labour Party is not very good at talking about, that it doesn't, it regards as a distraction from its primary goal, its primary uh, reason for existing. The Labour Party has, and I know that you know this, but the Labour Party has historically regarded constitutional questions as questions to be solved simply by the existence of the Labour Party, right? The Labour Party exists to further working class representation Mm -hmm. in Parliament, insofar as there are problems with the way in which... um, you know, democracy is conducted in this country. There are problems to be solved simply through, um, you know, f- further intensification of the existence of the Labour Party in terms of seats, in terms of members, in terms of, you know, greater campaigning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, beyond that, they're a distraction. They're just an extrusion of class relations. If it's even theorised in those terms, right, get, or that it's a, a distraction from what really matters, can be done anti-intellectually, can be done intellectually as well. Yeah. But it seems to me that one of the things that comes out... You know, what I've been thinking in, in, in the wake of the election is that, you know, we have a Tory government yeah, with a substantial majority of the kind we haven't seen for, for many, many years. It is also a government that will, in one sense, deal with Brexit. So the Brexit question is unlikely to be in the form that it is now on, you know, a part of the, the, the campaign in 2024. There's lots of things we don't know about what will happen in the next five yep. years. right? So I wouldn't you know, be, be too confident in that sense. Its consequences, I think, will be there, but it won't necessarily happen in the same terms. But that doesn't mean that those constitutional questions have gone away, right? And, and you know, you, you talk about nationalism in, in Scotland, and, and again, you know, I think it's worth saying that there are iterations of nationalism in this sense right the, the scottish nationalism is 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 distinct from you know orbanism and stuff like that yes. it's one of the mistakes being made by lisa nandy is to is, oh god yeah. opposition between you know this this you know any you know this completely you know uh homogenous notion of nationalism which is a very easy one i think by the way for, for the left to slip into at times mm-hmm. like i you know i've done it myself at various points um it is to talk to you know which is not also not like an occasionally unreasonable supposition, right, that civic nationalism can shift very easily into a kind of isolationist or ethnic nationalism. Yeah. It's certainly truer in England than in Scotland, I think, at the moment. Um, but there we go. So, so it does seem to me that this question, this constitutional question, this question of sovereignty, this question of nationhood, this question of, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be 
part of our politics for a long time. Do you think they have resources to deal with that in the Labour Party, just intellectually or politically as it stands? Gosh, um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing about it is, is that if you had asked me five years ago, I would say clearly not. Um, uh, their behaviour in Scotland showed this, mm. and the fact that they're sticking to that. I mean, this is one of the most depressing things about um, uh, the period of Corbyn leadership. On issues like Scotland, Brexit, um, there was um, a kind of unwillingness to address the politics. Um, so, I mean, just to frame this, um, it's not the case that any uh, given um, set of answers to these really genuinely difficult questions would obviously have won. But uh, w what we ought to be thinking about is between losing better and losing worse, right? Um, it may be that we couldn't have won this under any circumstances. We couldn't have won it with a Blairite. We couldn't have won it with a Milibandite. Um, you know, um, so that's possible. But at least we could have lost a lot better. Uh, lost in a way that would have kept um, the project going. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Okay, so when we look back at these issues, I actually think um, uh, there's a whole range of issues on which uh, Corbyn, McDonnell and Momentum uh, uh, generally avoided the question. On Brexit, um, yeah, sure, there was this big divide. So address it. Uh, how do you address it? You address it politically. Uh, what do they do in the European elections? Let's bring this country together. You're not reading the room. I mean, the country doesn't want to be kept together. <laughs> manifestly but also you're not addressing the issue um same thing with the anti-semitism stuff okay there i mean people aren't stupid they know that there's what is there to be anti-semitic about some of it is congeals around the issue of israel right now that's a difficult question and it's it was labor's job under a left-wing leadership to untangle those things um you say what you like about labor against the witch hunt jewish voice for labor i don't always agree with them but at least they're addressing the politics of it Momentum didn't want to do that. Labour didn't want to do that. They they sent Corbyn out or McDonnell out to simper and offer sort of vacuous um, assurances and bureaucratic solutions. You have to address the politics. And with Brexit, it was the same thing. Let's bring the country together, you know, um, and let's recognise that what we have in common, you know, if you're living in a in Hackney and you're working class, and if you're living in Warrington and you're working class, so you have much more in common than divide you. Okay, great. That's mm -hmm. true. But... There's a pretty big issue here, which is racism. You never want to address that. Um, now, sidestepping that issue worked in 2017. But uh, the uh, total effect was that actually Labour um, didn't really inspire anyone on this issue and uh, got attacked from all sides as a result. So you get attacked anyway. So you may as well take a position. Scotland... Um, I think uh, the, the interesting thing is my impression of Corbyn and McDonnell is that they don't really value the union in and of itself. But they're also um, wary of, you know, Scottish nationalism because, of course, you know, we, we have reasons to distrust the politics of Nicola Sturgeon. Um, but we also uh, and also we're. We're worried about um, splitting up, you know, working class uh, voters into national blocks. But 
you know, I mean... Uh, it seems not, like they're doing it anyway. <laughs> it's happening, exactly, and you have to relate to it constructively. But the issue is w- they should have addressed the reasons why um, uh, Scottish voters wanted, uh, like l- mostly Labour Scottish voters, wanted to leave, wanted to, wanted to exit from the union. Um, and uh, so I fear that it's not just... Um, that they have no answers to constitutional issues. Um, and although, to be fair, you know, what did come up a bit last moment was the offer of a constitutional convention. That was great. Mm. I mean, I'm glad they put that in, but nobody had spent any time arguing for it. So much in that manifesto was good, but hadn't been argued for. Yes. Green New Deal yes. or Green Industrial Revolution, slightly different animal. But, you know, nobody had really spent any time building the case for it. So unsurprisingly, and of course, Labour didn't even try to you know, build a case for it during the election. <laughs> unsurprisingly, these things didn't resonate. They were great promises for the activists, the grassroots. Um, so, um, yeah, in terms of the uh, constitutional issues, I think it's going to fall to the um, younger generation uh, if Clive Lewis hadn't uh, sort of uh, crashed his campaign from the off, um, he might have got just enough grassroots support behind him to raise these issues and then get him on the ballot. I mm. wouldn't have voted for him, but I could. Uh, I would. I would appreciate him bringing up things like uh, constitutional reform and membership democracy. Yeah, um, there is a real problem with um, the um, system in this country. Uh, apart from the sort of national question. Um, the electoral system, I mean, I don't think, I think this is far from being the number one issue, but it does seem to me that um, we've been avoiding this because we've been hoping that first past the post would at least, you know, at least if we get Corbyn in, we get a majority mm. behind him, that's that's enough to work with. And you could see the logic of that, but we also know that in the long run, and uh, a lot of research shows this, that um, first-past-the-post systems uh, benefit and the Conservatives uh, because their votes are more distributed. Mm-hmm. Labour votes, left-wing votes are more concentrated because of the, they're concentrated around industry, con- clusters of capital, etc. Um, and also um, there are all sorts of other features which um, about first-past-the-post which benefit right-wing governments. So we might want to think about that. now. But if we are going to think about that, then we're going to have to think about creative responses to uh, the SNP, uh, Ply Cymru, the Greens. Yeah. And I, I, I hate, you know, I mean, I'm not one of these people for progressive alliances. <laughs> and I hate this idiom, and I, I really think it's not... You might have to forge an alliance, mm. but I think making a principle out of alliances when it's a tactic, I think it's a mistake. Yeah. But um, we are going to have to be open-ended and creative about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. You know, in some sense, the, the question is, you know, even you know, I think the question is always like, what exactly would this this progressive alliance be? I mean, certainly in England, you, <laughs> the Greens. I mean, great, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, but like it's probably not sufficient liberal democrats well i mean yeah. progressive is the the word with a big question mark over it there mm. um and and then you know there's all sorts of complex questions about the the, the sort of scottish nationalists you know i, I don't want to spend you know, too long i mean there is a, there is this question i guess um that that that, that floats around again you know, with the constitution stuff with the, the national question etc etc is always and, and it was there it was visible in the rhetoric always this you know desire to, to to find the economic truth and believe that you can, by identifying the economic truth, you know, move the politics in a different direction. I, I think that's, 
you know, a creditable and possible position. I also you know, don't think it works automatically, but that by merely identifying yeah. the economic truth, you therefore have a naturally arising political truth that comes from it. And that seemed to me to be sometimes the assumption, right, that, that you say that, well, you have all these things in common, so vote Labour. That, that doesn't work. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to... You've seen very clearly that it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, persuade people of, of the, that reality. I mean, the, 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 the flip side of, of this, I guess, and you know, in some ways I think it's a, a you know, dangerous territory in some ways because I think it's, it's the kind of the classic consolation, right? Which is to say, well, it's the press. But the flip side of this story is that the press were shocking. Mm-hmm shocking in the course of this campaign um and you know it's it's sometimes very gratifying to to kind of castigate the press and i think the the british press in particular are you know venal self-serving incurious too close to power etc etc a few exceptions but generally true um i i also think I don't know what you make of this. I, I think the conservative press, the conservative campaign, played the press really, really successfully. Absolutely, and did so in a way that you know this, you had this kind of continual fog. You see, you had these numbers, kind of. You know, <coughs> there's a point at which Pretty Patel said, "Oh, there'll be two extra murders. Sorry, one extra murder every fortnight under Labour," which I thought was like really just, a, just, a, just completely plucked out of thin air you know, and you had these kind of additive these cumulative figures they're like you know i don't know labor will spend you know labor will take two billion pounds from from each person or, you know whatever I mean, it's just kind of completely ludicrous mm-hmm. you know summative figures which you know made their way through the headlines headlines get you know circulated at light speed on social media etc 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 you had these kind of third party campaign groups yep. the, and the, the, the used, you know the ran ad campaigns on social media i got like this series of ads through the campaign from something called capitalist work i got that too which i thought was yeah you've got, you've got me wrong there <laughs> but i thought it was interesting because these are kind of detached bodies that effectively run you know campaigning arms of, of the conservative party um but but it seemed to me that the, the one of the effects of this sort of you know the the you know what you might call and i i'm opposed to making dominic cummings into a sort of you know unrivaled brain genius which sure. i don't think he is but you know the, the sort of cummings fog you know here where where everything was you, know, you couldn't you know, maybe you don't believe the numbers but you don't trust the labor rebuttal to those numbers either mm-hmm. And that then makes it very difficult to make this case for, you know, transformative politics, because the kind of t- trust that's required underneath it has begun to. Ev- I mean, you know, it didn't just start evaporating in this campaign. It's a longer-term thing. But the ability to believe that politics could possibly deliver that for you, you know, it just wasn't there. It wasn't there. Um, and you know, I do think that was, you know, obviously visible on on. You know, I think. If many people's doorstep experiences was, you know, actually a sense that that the kind of anti-politics that I think over the course of the past decade, 15 mm-hmm. years, that lots of us have identified and said there is this strong, really, really strong anti-political trend within Western societies in general, we thought had maybe gone back a bit or maybe sort of regressed a bit in, in the course of the past few years. It was definitely still there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, the, the, you know, so... so you know, and, and in that sense, that's a much bigger problem than, than the press is biased, which is yeah. true, but also not a sufficient explanation for what happened. Um, so, so you have this kind of, uh, 
you know, the, the ground almost evaporating underneath your feet. Like there's no certainty, and there's no cer- and 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 in uncertain, you know, uncertain times, when you have these politicians promising these grand things as opposed to like a very, you know, you know, frankly very thin manifesto in some ways, then you know you can see the way that the political choice you know perhaps got made. But there's another part to this as well, which I think, you know, is is very, is, is even more difficult for, for a lot of us, which is that, you know, lots of people saw this possibility coming, right? That the media would be a problem, that, you know, Labour would be disadvantaged. Because cause the other part of this, you can't, the, the routes that are available to the Conservative Party are not available to the Labour Party in the same yeah. way. It's, it's really important to bear in mind. When people saying, oh, we need a Dominic Cummings of the left, or you know, the, 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 the two things, they, you know, they're, they're not comparable things. Um, but, but there was an assumption, and it was an assumption partly based on the experience of 2017, where there was, you know, mobilisation by momentum of kind of doorstep volunteers and sort of lots of campaigning. And momentum mobilised very well in this election. It mobilised yes. thousands and thousands of people, and those people put in huge amounts of work you know really you know war uh you know the rubber off the soles of their shoes in some ways yeah um and the thought was that this would counter that you know array of communicative misinformation or bias or spin or whatever and that mm-hmm. that 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 didn't work uh to some extent it did, but um, it the, it worked in places in London and London marginals. Like it worked in Bedford. We held Bedford. Mm-hmm. We should have lost. Um, we held Canterbury, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, we won Putney. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unable to work up must, much enthusiasm for winning Putney. But, you know, I mean, it, it in the context of a win, that would have been a big thing. But um, so um, and we didn't lose... Um, as many sort of London marginals as we should have done, if you know, given the scale of the general defeat, um, where it didn't work, of course, was in places uh, like Wrexham, uh, Grimsby. You know, um, this string of um, largely uh, former single industry or dual industry towns, um, where essentially the industries are kaput. Uh, there's uh, very few jobs. Young people are leaving. It's a very old, elderly audience um, of voters, and uh, they've been breaking away from laborism for some time. I mean, essentially, these trends maturing. So, um, what's happening there? I, I mean, if you think about um, those communities, where are they getting their information from? Obviously, not from the Labour Party. And I'm sorry, but six weeks of door knocking you know like isn't going to undo years of uh, that quickly years of um stuff that they may have got from the daily mail or they may have got from facebook groups um you know like there are huge vectors of uh, largely right wing vectors of politicization on these on the social industry you know um and there's a lot of um there's a lot more space, even you know, compared to the tabloids. There's a lot more space for outright demented, unhinged stuff to flourish, um, because, uh, as you know, um, Facebook, Twitter, etc. They don't really care about the content. They're content agnostic. They don't exercise that kind of editorial control. The editorial control is exercised in the interests of goading people into reacting. Okay, so we know all that. So um, I would be interested to find out, um, and, uh, um, you know, like you, I saw these so-called dark ads. I was, at the time, my thinking was, this stuff isn't going to work. Yeah. 
And I dare say it probably didn't make that big a difference. But I'd be interested to find out, given that all you needed to do in these seats was to engineer, um, uh, first of all, vote suppression. That was important. So demoralize sufficient groups of voters, but also engineer a swing of a relatively small group of voters in these seats. May have been tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe somebody will correct me on that, but I suspect that's what we're talking about. Same thing with Trump in um, the swing states of the United States. Um, the difference being that Trump didn't actually get a majority. But anyway, um, the point is that um, uh, I'd be interested to find out whether they had a st- strategy of gaming the system by focusing on just that small number of voters who, you know, like in a, in a polarized election, aren't sure. Mm. Um, so obviously the, the, the main strategy seems to have been voter suppression, stop them from turning out, and that worked. Mm. Um, I remember uh, even um, in Bedford, which we held on to, you know, I was there on the last day, and there were a few voters who were like, you know, we would randomly stop people on the streets, have you voted? Um, you know, like, um, we're getting drenched and yeah. rained on, and like sometimes people would generally be friendly enough, like they weren't hostile or anything, but Sometimes you would say things like that. You know, I'm not that fond of Boris Johnson, but I think if your guy gets in, we'll be in a tricky situation too. So I'm not going to bother. Mm. I'll let them sort it out among themselves. I remember uh, towards the start of the campaign, there were people being interviewed, Vox Pops and so on, like saying, I'm not interested in politics. I think I've got to look out for myself. That's hard enough. Mm. So the idea that politics can do something for you, obviously, as you say, the anti-political um, sort of um, mainstream if you like, is that no politician can do anything for you. Um, And that's why I think you got um, people um, being interviewed, often very poor people uh, being interviewed, saying, I don't trust any of them, but I like what Boris Johnson is saying. Um, How do we address this? I I think the worst thing to do would be to address it um, narrowly as a question of media bias uh, and to lacerate just the BBC and you know obviously we expect better of the BBC the BBC performed very badly there's a legitimacy to these complaints Laura Koonsberg in particular was toxic absolutely mm-hmm. unutterably toxic but so you know like she's the BBC political editor that's why she gets so much stick okay not not accepting the possibility of a degree of sexism too um but um uh, the the there's a broader crash of meaning there's a broader um crisis of authoritative knowledge who do you trust who do you believe in um if you can't believe that the doctor giving you an autism jab is on your side and the doctor is the, sort of the guy in the white coat that, you know, you're supposed to trust these people. Who do you trust? Mm. And that's, I think, indicative of a broader um, sort of transformation, a uh, uh, social transformation of neoliberal society, um, wherein trust relations are actually um, scarce and fragile. Right. I mean, because I, I, I was thinking about, you know, the you know why because you know it's it's, it's always interesting when when people say oh well we don't need the media we don't need the media so well we do need the media media for the vast majority of people you know uh, you know 99.9% of people media is where politics happens mm-hmm. it's where political judgments are made and those judgments depend on presentation they depend on the people arguing they depend on the arguments made they depend on you know you know, <laughs> you know all of that all of that and which is why it's important to talk about media but it, it, it was not always so, and it was not always so that the media was so homogenous either, of course. Mm-hmm. There are questions of ownership, there are questions of, of kind of control, there are questions of unionisation. 
and in that sense, you know, it, it struck me that the kind of associational bodies where people might have made their politics before have been in atrophy for decades. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about the trade unions here in mm -hmm. one way, but, but, you know, bodies beyond them as well. You know, there are... You know, associational bodies beyond trade unions, sometimes sure. difficult for the left. <laughs> They're not always on our side either. Um, Absolutely. But 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 these these bodies, you know, that you know, and it's a it's a it's a wider problem, it's a wider social problem that these spaces of encounter and these spaces of sociality are ever diminishing. And actually the, the places in which people, you know, encounter each other and talk and think about politics or have discussions about politics are are ever, ever decreasing and ever, ever further atrophying. And so it, it does seem to me that this presents a problem for the left that is actually very hard to solve. And certainly from, from the top down, it's very hard to solve. Um, you know, I've been encouraged in some ways by some of the work being done by, you know, the people in Manchester, Momentum, for instance, who've, yeah. you know, who, who've, you know, try to tackle this question head on. Um, I, you know, I, I want to move on a bit, and I just think, you know, in, in some ways, you know, there's been lots of conversation about the manifesto, you know, what, what was good in it, what was bad in it, whether, whether there was too much in it, whether it was mm. too radical, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think in some ways that, that, that wasn't the problem. I think there was a lack of an overall narrative. Mm. There was a narrative that was possible, that was there, and as you say, hadn't been argued for and built for and, you know, you know built, before the kind of narrow period of the election, which was around the Green New Deal, the Green Industrial Revolution, and so on. Um, I, I still think that's possible. One of the things, you know, I, I, rem I, I remember speaking with um, uh, Ellie Mayer Hagen bef just before the election yeah. kicked off, and she's, you know, she's anxious about you know, climate, it being a climate election. You know, in, in, in one sense, because she's saying, you know, look, uh, Australia had a climate election, and and you know, the good guys lost. Yeah. like really badly lost by making the election about climate change, you know, which speaks to a problem, right? And it's a problem that I think the Green New Deal was a better policy to deal with and had the potential to deal with there. But it's now, you know, th these, these questions are now open questions in the labor movement mm -hmm. in a way that they haven't been before. Yeah, But also the progress that's been made on policy in that sense is under threat, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think people are right to to fear that the succession debate, which is now st starting between sort of various candidates, but, you know, the two obvious frontrunners are Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey, that debate that's, that's now starting will, you know, everyone in that debate who has a reasonable chance of, of winning will talk up the Green New Deal, right? We'll talk about the need to address climate change. The fear is that, well, of course, they say that now. Yeah. Right. And that over the course of their tenure, you know, and this is one thing that that, that should be said in, in praise of Corbyn is that although he, you know, often resorted to the kind of bureaucratic, you know, uh, diffidences, right, mm -hmm. the, the, the ways out actually of addressing a political question, he's also pretty resilient in terms of like not rowing back on things that were to him political commitments. Yeah. Um. I'm not sure that that strength exists much in the Labour Party, actually, among many of its politicians. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does seem to me that, 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 that these questions are, you know, that the, 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 the policy framework is as under threat, actually, 
um, in in the medium term. I think in the short term, it's actually you know that that, there, that it would be very difficult for any new leadership, whoever it might be, to move away from kind of the centre of the 2019 manifesto, right? So stuff like the Green New Deal, some of the nationalisations, perhaps not all of them. I don't think you see things like inclusive ownership funds. I think that's going to be a difficult thing to 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 bring back in. Um, so so in terms of that that progress, do, I mean, I, I, am I right to be worried about this? Yes. Um, absolutely. Um, I suppose uh, it, it's it, it's logical that you proceeded <laughs> from talking about the media and presentation to talking about this, because, of course, the big justification for um, pulling back politically from these issues will be um, we lost the media battle. We didn't have credibility, mm. which is one of these nebulous concepts, concepts that generally translates in a kind of racialized, gendered way to mean a white man in a suit, mm. um, like Mr. Starmer. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so I think that um, there, there is a, a connection there. Just with regards to how we could handle the media, I think it's worth saying that politicians um, of a, uh, to use the... Um, cliche, a populist hue, um, like Mélenchon or Farage even uh, on the right, um, have demonstrated how that can be done. You can have a kind of insurgent uh, approach to the media, which relies upon um, figuring out where the discursive rules are and where the boundaries are. And you try to, um, you act almost as an advocate um, for values of groups that are socially uh, excluded from the spectacle, as it were. Uh, so in Farage's case, he's advocating for like uh, suburban bigotry, you know. Um, but he's he's effective as an advocate because he works out where the boundaries are, and he just you know he converts their um, bigoted concerns into language that can sound semi-reasonable and he pushes at the boundaries mm. um, and also there's always a, a kind of stagey antagonism with the journalist who's interviewing him and so on um, and pol politicians who are good at that kind of um, fight but always locating themselves as fighting on behalf of um, an out group, you know, or some group that's excluded from the sort of the the Westminster Village or whatever it is, um, can, can tend to do very well. Even Sturgeon does this to mm. some extent. It's uh, it's actually very good for her. I mean, there's the the SNP is very good at deflecting attention from its own record in Scotland in yeah. some ways. It's, it's Westminster. Um, um, that, I mean, that's the problem. If they ever get independence, uh, they're 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 at risk. Um, and I feel a reaction would benefit them. Anyway. Um, but yes, um, how do we defend um, the policy side of this? Now, there are two ways to think about this. One is um, I've seen people who are quite um, sort of relaxed, you know, because they think, well, God, it's still well better than it was back in 2015, you know. I mean, that's true. It absolutely is. And we would have taken any of these candidates over Andy Burnham or, or Liz Kendall <laughs> or Yvette Cooper. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. But... Um, one of my comrades, Salvage, Jamie Allenson, draws our attention to a quote from, uh, God, what is it, the uh, Clausewitz, mm -hmm. uh, that in the context of a defeat, 
I'm going to get this quote wrong, but roughly speaking, in a context of a defeat, you make your um, kind of, you know you make your losses, you make your retreat as limited as possible. You don't cede uh, more than you absolutely have to. Um, you don't give the enemy more comfort and more space than you have to give them. Um, and that's the that's the the worry that I have here is that too much of uh, what's happening here there is is. Um, acting out um, is lashing out um, you know whether it's people who want us to believe that uh, Keir Starmer is you know a, a proper leftist you know I mean he's a decent guy but he's not yeah, whatever. Um, or people who want us to think that uh, Ian Lavery could have could have s- smashed it. Uh, him and Don Butler together. Can you imagine that, Joe? <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, but the, the, so 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 let me just because so you're saying here that that so because there is an attitude among some of the left, and it, you know it's something I feel kind of sympathetic to 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 a degree, which is that the sort of inveterate hostility from the left of the Labour Party to the rest of the Labour Party has been, you know, at best, uh, unproductive. Yes. Um, And that actually there has to be a better way of doing this stuff. Because one of the things that, that, you know, was very clear was, you know, it was pretty hard to rebut the claim that the Labour Party was a divided party Mm. in the course of the election because it was. Um, Because many of the parliamentary party had spent a good four years attacking the leadership and um, many of us had spent four years attacking them. And, you know, in some, you know, because, so so this is one of the things that, for instance, the leadership candidates say is like, I'll end factionalism. Well, I don't think you can end factionalism. Sure. I think you can have you know, a degree of productive tension between factions. Now, for, for the right, that's that means the, the left of the party saying, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, and, you know, taking what you're given by the right. I don't think, I don't think that's helpful. Mm. You know, my anxieties about Starmer, you know, are, are you know, effectively, I don't, don't believe that he took on the McLeibel trial as a, a junior barrister in order to supplant Jeremy Corbyn 20, 30 years later sure. as leader of the Labour Party. But what worries me is that, that you know, that, you know, you look at his record as director of public prosecutions and you have a man who's very clearly a principled human rights barrister make these, you know, accommodations with you know, some, you know, failing to prosecute cases where, you know, the the you know the Jan Charles de Menezes case, the Spy Cops case, the, you know, his you know his kind of you know praise of twenty four hour courts during the 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 twenty eleven riots. You see, so these things where where you think, okay, so so how do you balance these principles when you're in a position of power? And let me just say that there's no not a great degree of latitude in the DPP's job. So, you know, there, there is some. Mm-hmm. And you know, definitely questions to raise. There's not an infinite degree of latitude, but anyway, so so there is this question about about you know personal principle, but actual political record. I think yeah. is 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 the more important one. Um, but it does seem also that there is this kind of one weird trick to save the Labour Party stuff going around. Whereas yeah. actually, I think you know, and it's a problem of the period of reflection. There hasn't been. Yeah. There isn't actually that much reflection. Yeah. Going on. Um. I I, I guess you know the. The problem that we have just got a you know a couple of minutes left now, um, you know, is you know, what is the future for the left in the Labour Party? 
Well, that's very hard to say. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, what you were saying with regard to Keir Starmer and potential leadership, I think what's lurking in the background here is that Corbyn, as a result of his years of 30 or 40 years of activism and his education um, in politics, has a certain historical consciousness, to put it that way, um, uh, an awareness of his role. So, for example, when Syriza got elected and he was talking to Stathis Kouvalakis and said, you know, I hope you guys have a plan B because they're going to come for you. Uh, so he knows what he's up against. That's why he had the resilience that he did. Right. Um, and that's what I valued most about him was his, uh, you know, sort of sense of the big strategic stakes, even if I didn't agree with him always tactically um, or with his record and some issues. Um, so um, uh, I fear that no current Labour leadership candidate um, has that degree of uh, spine that degree of resilience. So I think um, uh, I was asked before the election, who would you choose for leader after Corbyn? Um, and I said, well, maybe we should focus on um, not on leaders, but how do we organize ourselves? This was largely because I have no idea. Mm. Um, I, I probably will vote for Long Bailey because I think that uh, she's politically creative. She was behind the Green Industrial Revolution. You know, she's very smart. Um, but I don't think that this is the, uh, the answer. The mm. answer lies in how do we get um, activists organized and what kind of organization? Um, how do we, because we've had years, uh, a couple of years of unprecedented ability to shape policy. That's not going to happen now. So we need to be much more resilient and much more long-term in our thinking. That is, I think, a great point for us to leave it. Uh, our period of reflection will, of course, continue here on Navarra FM. Uh, I have been James Butler. This has been Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. You can find more podcasts as well as video interviews and articles at our website, navaramedia.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Navarra Media. We're not funded by advertisers or wealthy backers, but rely on our subscribers. We ask for just one hour of your wage a month to keep us going. You can sign up at support.navaramedia.com and give us just one hour of your wage a month. So we can keep working round the clock. That's support.navaramedia.com. <laughs>